My name is Dave Ainsworth. Um, I think most of you know me. During the last three weeks, we have been listening and reflecting on the story of God, or I guess the last two weeks, and this is the third. Um, I hope that's been a good experience for you to hear the Bible as one big story. While we often come to the Bible looking for answers, doctrines, methods, rules, principles, at heart, the Bible is a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And so every year at Citizens, we take time to experience the Bible as a story from beginning through the middle to the end. Um, And I want to start rather quickly uh, so that we can move through, but let's continue to hear from new people. Um, I would love if by the end of the month we heard from every person in attendance. Um, if you haven't spoken, that's okay, but our community really needs your voice, like the, needs the Spirit to speak through you. So I encourage you to to feel emboldened by that. Um, for those who are more quick to speak, have already spoken, leave some space for the introverts to answer. It usually takes a little bit of time and a little bit of silence. Um, I am I, over the years, have become very comfortable with uncomfortable silence, and so so take that as an invitation for you to become comfortable with that as well. Uh, well, let's begin as a, with a recap. Here is, what, here is what has happened so far in the story. A being called God created all things. God always does what is good, right, and perfect. God created human beings in his image and gave them everything they needed to live full and happy lives with him. The first humans were called Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had one rule, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they did, they would die. But a serpent came, who we later learned was Satan, and he tempted them to eat the fruit and disobey God, and they did. God punished Adam and Eve, They felt ashamed of what they had done. God showed them grace, though, and promised them that one day a greater man than them would come and set all things right. Despite God's mercy and despite Adam and Eve's shame, it was clear that humanity was dangerously broken. They hurt and killed each other, destroyed the earth, and rejected God. It was so bad that God decided to destroy everything with a flood. But one man, Noah, found favor with God. And so God decided to begin again with him. Things didn't go much better. So God chose one man, Abraham, and promised to save the world through his offspring. They would be his people. And God promised to give them back all that had been lost as a result of sin. He would save them and not just for their sake, but so that the world would be saved through them. God would bless the world through blessing Abraham. Sometimes his people obeyed God and followed him, but many times they continued to disobey him. A pattern developed where over and over again, humans would disobey God. He would rightly judge their actions, but also offer grace and forgiveness, allowing them to return to him. God later created a system of sacrifices where people could offer the blood of an animal in place of their own blood as a consequence for their sin. This provided forgiveness, but it could never produce perfect people. They continued to sin. Act 2, scene 3, the kings and the prophets. The people of Israel continued on their journey back to the promised land. God led them by a great cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And when this cloud moved, they followed it and they set up camp whenever it stopped. But when the Bible, when the people of God got closer to Canaan, they would not enter the land because they were afraid of the people who lived there. God's punishment for not trusting him was to make them wander in the desert for 40 years. 
This was a time filled with struggle and complaints against Moses and God. As Moses neared the end of his life, he reminded the people of Israel of all of God's promises, laws, and commandments. Moses challenged them, you must love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, for he is your life. And then Moses said to Joshua, the next leader of Israel, in front of all the people, be strong and courageous. Now you will lead these people into the land God promised us. Do not be afraid or discouraged. God will never leave you or forget about you. After wandering the desert for 40 years, God finally led the people of Israel to recapture the promised land from their enemies. As the Israelites entered the land, God told them to drive out all the people who lived there because they were full of evil. God gave them many victories in battle and completely honored his promises to them, but the people didn't listen to God's command. They did not drive out all the people, and so they eventually started worshiping false gods like those people. And this false worship led them into many other sins. Because of their sin and disobedience, God removed his protection and allowed them to be overpowered and punished by foreign nations. When the people suffered, they would come back to God and beg for his help and forgiveness. God would once again forgive them and send leaders called judges to lead them in defeating their enemies. But they would once again conquer their enemies at every border. In victory, the people would worship God. But soon after, the people, often the next generation, would turn away from God again and live their own way. This was the pattern from generation to generation. The people of Israel would come to God and worship him when they needed help. But when things were going well, they returned to worship other things. The Bible describes these times of rebellion as a time when everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Since kings ruled other nations, the people of Israel complained to God saying, we want a human king that we can see to rule over us. Maybe that would fix their disobedience. They thought this would answer their problems. God gave the people what they wanted and allowed them to be ruled by a succession of human kings. The first king they chose was Saul because he was tall and impressive. But Saul disobeyed God, and so God removed his blessing from Saul. Then God searched for a king who would love him and live in his ways, and he chose a young boy, the youngest of many brothers named David. When David grew up and was made king, God blessed him greatly and Israel. Even though David greatly sinned against God, God still called him a man after God's own heart. God made yet another covenant with David and promised him that one of his heirs would be a king who would rule forever as king over God's people and also as king over the entire earth, not just the promised land. David's son Solomon was also a great king who was very wise. But later on, Solomon married foreign wives who led him to worship foreign gods. And because of Solomon's failures, God allowed civil war to break out and God's people were divided. The line of kings descending from David continued to rebel against God and his authority. God sent prophets to be his messengers, to challenge the kings and the people to obey God and fulfill their role to be a light to the nations and bring blessing to the world. But time and time again, they refused to listen to these prophets. Because of their rebellion, God removed his protection from Israel and her kings and allowed other nations to come in and conquer them. This time, the Israelites were forced out of the promised land and sent into exile once again, slaves to a foreign nation. 
For centuries, God's people would be out of their land and under the oppressive thumb of one world power after another. God continued to send prophets to the people, even in exile, and these prophets told of a hope that one day God would make a new covenant with his rebellion, rebellious people. He would do this by sending a great savior, sometimes called an eternal king, sometimes a messiah or anointed one, sometimes a warrior, sometimes a suffering servant. This Messiah would fulfill the covenant himself, redeem God's people from exile, save God's people from their own disobedience, and rule over God's creation forever. Despite the warnings of the prophets and these great promises, the people of Israel stopped listening to God, and God stopped talking for 400 years. So that was a quick work through of the majority of the Old Testament. And by now we've really heard a summary of the entire Old Testament. Um, What are the most striking characteristic and patterns of this history when you hear it in one big story? What jumps out? I think um, God, I mean, man's um, bent toward disobedience and God's response to that. Yeah, what, is it surprising there been to disobedience? Or is the, or is the God's response surprising? Which do you think? I think it's surprising because I I see that they they get a a taste every time of like God's character and God's goodness and like, yet... I don't know. I, I, I think that sometimes we think like, oh man, if God intervened, if God just parted the Red Sea in front of my eyes, that like, I wouldn't do that, right? Um, and so I think to myself, oh, it's striking that they saw, you know, these miraculous signs and prophets and things like that and these uh, wars that the Lord like won for them and yet they still disobey. But I, I, I mean, I can't say that like, that's not me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, one of the surprising things here, you know, that Christian theologians have said over the years, you know, we always talk about the problem of evil, but then there's also the problem of goodness and grace. Like, how is it that God so consistently pursues his people? Like, why doesn't he give up on them, you know? Um, Yeah, it's just really, really surprising. His patience is is undying. especially when it doesn't really feel like the Israelites are getting better. It's not like they like keep like marching up like closer and closer at each time. And so that's hard. So in this like story where you have the Israelites responding consistently in sin and then they, they, they take a break for a little bit, but then they always fall back into it. You see God, the way God's, that he's active in both Israel's judgment where he like removes his hand and, and they're attacked by neighbors or what not. And he's active in their redemption, like bringing deliverance. Like how does that, what does that teach us about God that he's active in both the removal like of hand, his hand in judgment and then the bringing of his hand in salvation? How does that strike you? Um, I think of like a, a parent um, like a full committed investment of it's like it's not an abandoning relationship because God could very easily <clears throat> say 
you're on probation. I've removed my hand of blessing and protection. I'm going to allow other nation states to kind of basically take your people, <laughs> um, occupy your land, um, and then just just back off and say this is what you get, like karma, so to speak. You you reap what you sow, and then that's the end of it. Um, time and time again, when the people of Israel kind of do an about face, um, humble themselves and say like, okay, we are repentant for what we've done. Um, he'll kind of show back up and say, okay, now I'm gonna extend my covering and my protection again, and then kind of like eventually take you out of exile. Um, so it's, it's like a, there's a rhyme and reason to what he's doing. There's like a design and an intention of like, I hope to restore, like his position is I want to restore my people to me. It's just, it's just going to be a process. Mm. So I see that pursuit, kind of ongoing pursuit. Yeah, it's really, it's really hard in the moment to know, like, is this, is this judgment or discipline, you know, like there's like a difference between the two. Um, and it's really both like, because he's, he has like clearly told them like, man, if, if you don't do these things, um, and if you go and worship other gods instead of me, then I'm going to like release you to your sin. Like in judgments were like a natural consequence. Um, but then there is this desire that that would convince them to that only Yahweh is good. Like, um, but this interplay, like you're not really sure, man, is he, is this judgment? Is it wrath? Is it discipline? Is it love? Um, it's all together. Um, do you agree or how do you feel about God's decision to like save the Israelites over and over and over again and not start with like either not just like just forget it or, or go to another nation or those things like why did he keep doing that and i really like anthony's analogy of a, of a parent you mm -hmm. know i think that i think about my kids and the rebellion or the different things that they've done over the years and there's just a constant desire to of course i'm gonna come back to them not just because i'm a parent because i love them mm -hmm. i love them deeply and i'll always be my children matter what and I'll always love them no matter what experience the whole gamut of everything with our, our children and never love one less or more so I really love that analogy of a parent and I really see how God really is that perfect parent he shows it here with them yeah yeah absolutely what one thing that strikes me as you were giving us you know sort of an overview of this that there's no guarantees, right? You could have a generation that follows after God, or we see this, like, with kings, you know, he was an evil king, but then his son was, you know, honored God in how he ruled, and then his son was an evil king, you know? And the, there's just no guarantees. It's that faith is such a... You can't have somebody else's faith, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a personal thing, and, and we make our choices, and but just generation after generation, that's one thing I just pray for our kids, you know, that they would <clears throat> follow after God. I just think it's such an important, powerful prayer 
um, because there's no guarantees just because they grew up in the church, they grew up in a Christian home, whatever they, um, we just see over and over again in the Bible, you know, God is faithful to generations, but generations aren't always faithful to the Lord. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that back and forth. Um, there's no like way to lockstep it, even like how they thought a king would fix their problems, but then a king doesn't, a king doesn't fix their problems. Um, how do you, uh, personally relate to the Israelites? And then how do you think about it when you look to the history of the church, um, and the church today? Like, how does the Old Testament sort of map on to you and to Christian history? I think one thing that felt uncomfortable as I was listening to the story this morning was <clears throat> as the Israelites moved into the promised land, they're given this command to essentially get rid of all the people in the lands. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was with a warning that God said, you know, if people remain in there, like you'll be tripped up and you'll worship their gods and things like that. And as I was listening to that, I'm like, oh, that feels like painfully reminiscent of sort of this North American church culture of like an inward isolated bubble of you know like if we're gonna you know live and follow Jesus like we've gotta remove all of the ungodly influences from just Stephen R. social spheres um and that's like often I found you know that's often not helpful it's helpful to a certain extent you know and so just kind of holding that tension of like did God know that's what they needed back then? And then hopefully with the indwelling of this, well, not to get too far ahead, but like hopefully uh, things are different now. And if so, how um, and in what ways are they the same? So kind of wrestling with that tension. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It is it is a, it is a tension for sure. Um, yeah. Um, go ahead, somebody. I feel, I feel like the... Can you guys hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I'm never sure with my wireless headphones. Um, I think like the depressing slash realist part of me like looks at the history of Israel and it's just like, well, there's actually no solution. Like it doesn't matter if you get a king, it doesn't matter if God comes to you in a pillar of fire and clouds. It doesn't matter if he's appearing to you with angels, like, like the pervasiveness and brokenness of sin and the way it's infiltrated the world, like that nothing will be okay. (laughs) Like nothing here is going to solve our problems. Like it's like this massive historical document of like, we've tried a lot and nothing really works. Mm -hmm. And like, that you will always like get tripped up by all these different things. And um, it's just like, it's good in one sense too, because it like refocuses you on what, like against idolatry, I guess. Um, I don't know, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> Yeah, I think there is, it's, it's discouraging in some sense to you because you can see the history of the church and you can see your own life like in the Old Testament. Um, but then that hopelessness, the 
if, if we remove God from the picture and his like consistent faithfulness, like it is kind of hopeless. Well, it, it is not kind of, it's like truly hopeless, but just to see, it gives me some comfort that man, God still like pursued his people. Like he still like kept going. Um, and so there is a kind of like realistic hopelessness that is good. Um, that sort of is honest. Um, and so, I mean, I think especially just like when they're like whole swaths of the church today, um, that are, um, just so far from the character of Jesus, like you just like can't even make any connection with them whatsoever. Um, and just wondering like how God feels, what God will do. Um, he probably will do, he's the same God of the old Testament as the new, he'll probably do a really similar, similar work, which is hard. Um, but salvation is still there. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is this like great portrayal of human sin and human reality. Anything else, any other reflections, not necessarily this question, just anything that you feel like you would like to say, you feel prompted to say. Yeah. Hi. I just wanted to add that it's kind of, I know last week we talked about like Noah's Ark and the covenant between like God and his people and he kind of promised not to ever wipe us out again. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, just like the final reflection from this or takeaway is like he's falling through on his work. He's not wiping us completely. And I think part of his grace and forgiveness is his attempt to like honor that covenant and like try to guide our hearts back to, to our agreements and like the nature of our relationship. Yeah. Yeah, that is a really, like, even if we're not faithful to the covenant, he will be. Um, he, it, he, it was sort of a one-sided promise. Um, and so that's a great, a great connection to make. So, okay, we'll keep going. Act three, scene one, the birth of Jesus. 400 years passed since God had spoken to his people. The Israelites, called Jews, had been under the control of other nations for hundreds of years. They were now ruled by Rome, the most powerful empire that the world had ever known. The Jews were still awaiting and hoping for a king who would come to save them and lead them into victory. Some of the people tried to keep the law God gave to Moses as strictly as possible to show they were faithful to the king when he came. Some conspired with the Romans for self-benefit. Some sought to take the kingdom by force and acted out in violence against the Romans. And some hid away in remote mountains, segregating themselves for when the king came. Uh, these were ways that the Jews dealt with the, uh, their oppression. Everyone was waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, God sent an angel to a young woman named Mary in the town of Nazareth. She was engaged to marry a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of King David and of Abraham. The angel told Mary that she would become pregnant and give birth to God's son, even though she was still a virgin. The angel revealed that this child in her was from the Holy Spirit and would become a king whose kingdom would never end. Sure enough, the next year, Mary gave birth to a son whom they named Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Not only did God reveal to Mary and Joseph that this boy was the long-awaited Messiah King, but he revealed it to others too. Angels shouted the news to shepherds who then ran into town and 
to find the baby Jesus and to tell everyone the amazing news. A star guided wise men from distant lands to come and worship him and bring gifts to this newborn king. The birth was truly a miracle. But after the miracle, Jesus disappeared into a very normal life. He grew up in both height and wisdom and was loved by God and everyone who knew him. So in the story, we heard about different people waiting for God in different ways. Um, You have the legalists uh, who felt like if they kept God's law, it would encourage God to return. Uh, The separatists who would leave normal life and go out into the wilderness and just wait um, outside of regular life. The compromisers who just uh, decided to be in bed with the Romans and just uh, turn lemons into lemonade. And then the revolutionaries who wanted to encourage like violent uprising uh, to take over uh, their land. Which of the four groups would you choose if you lived in the time of Jesus? What would be your strategy? The McElvoys are the legalists. Okay. Number one. What else? You can have a more complex answer if you want. You don't have to totally commit just at this point. So the the separatists were um, like the Essenes and kind of like a John the Baptist figure where they were just like, we're going to we're going to leave Jerusalem and go out into the wilderness and create our own little society um, so we can stay pure from uh, any corruption and just wait in the desert. I think when we see, say, legalists, I think. In, in some parts, it's our personality, especially mm-hmm. my wife, I think. Hey! <laughs> you know, but I'm a rule follower. <laughs> I just wanted to call her out. I, still, <laughs> I, I needed to do that. Uh, no, I think, because the positive side of that, too, is I think sometimes think, or you think the positive side is, hey, I'm just going to go along with I'm going to go along with this thing, and I know that somehow it's going to work itself out. It's, it's got to work itself out. I want to cause any problems. I don't want people to look at me and see so such a radical difference. Uh, but at the same time, hopefully they'll see a good side in me and, and things like that. But at the same time, still not uh, not really standing for ultimately what it's should probably our event. It's not our event? Okay, now you know us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there's truth to each of these positions. Like, um, so the fact is that like in Deuteronomy, God says, if you do these things, you can stay in the land and you'll thrive. And if you don't do these things, you cannot stay in the land. And so the Pharisees are like reasonable and saying like, man, we just got to do those things and make sure other people do them too. Um, And they even like were... They were kind of like Eve, you know, where Eve where said we don't even touch the tree, where they had all these rules to make sure that they didn't violate. What are some of the, like, reasonable things about the other? So anyone want to advocate for the other positions? Is like, this makes sense to me. I think I'd probably be um, in, the, in the category of the compromisers to just sort of, like, trust the process and um, not ruffle too many feathers and just, like, Hope that hope for the best. Yeah. Um, is that I, I think um, at least um, I, I find that I, I 
I don't necessarily have the capacity to kind of shake the system up. And so um, for me, I find that I would, I would kind of blend in and just like continue to practice my faith quietly, but just sort of, uh, you know, go with the flow. Yeah. 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 On that, I think the precedent for like compromise, so to speak, is you, you look at, um, Nebuchadnezzar and like Babylon, for example, you look at Israeli occupation, you look at men, uh, labor force scholars being like kidnapped or taken from Israel and the supplanted within the kingdom of Babylon and God saying like, seek, seek the welfare of this, this new nation state. That's not your own, but also like adhere to following after me. So like it's I, I think that the compromiser one is a little. I mean I like how what you said like make lemonade out of lemons, sort of. Yeah. Um, but there's this inter cultural integration, uh, kind of like political integration as well. Um, that is like it ha- has happened in some biblical stories to some mm-hmm. degree. So yeah, I wouldn't say that it's completely uh, unreasonable. Yeah, yeah. I mean there's like a spectrum in all of these. Uh, so like a compromiser would include like Matthew, the tax collector, who's like literally stealing from his like fellow Jews. Um, But then you also have the Sadducees who were very much like friendly to the Roman system and probably like thought of themselves like Daniels, you know, um, where they were like in power and could persuade as much as possible. But then in the Sadducees, like you obviously like power is dangerous. And so that that's tough too. So yeah, there's a spectrum there. Um, same would go just as we move through is like the revolutionaries, like, man, like we just talked about how God like instructed the Israelites to like rid the land of pagans, um, to rid the land of idol worship. And so there is this, this zeal that can happen and think, man, God will be behind us if we're just, as long as we're not babies, you know, like that's what the other people are doing. They're waiting when they shouldn't wait anymore. They should rise up. And obviously like we've seen the like destruction of, of uh, religious revolution just in the past couple of weeks, um, which is really frightening and scary um, and, and un-Christ-like. Um, and then the separatists, you know, the Benedict Option is like a famous book from the past couple of years where that's sort of advocating like, hey, like this is the dark ages. We just need to like, we just need to like retreat and educate our children and wait for things to get better. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm like this way in different ways. I'm probably like between a separatist and a compromiser. Like, I'm not really like a diligent rule keeper, love gray and can exploit gray very, very easily. And then I'm not like a zealot um, in any way. And so I'm going to sort of, you know, be a a small separatist uh, compromiser for myself makes the most sense to me. I think there was a small group, which the Bible often refers to as a remnant. Um, And so this would include, in Jesus' time, Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Simeon, um, and Anna, the prophetess, that were waiting on God. Um, That's what they were marked by. Um, How does waiting on God make sense, given the story of God so far? 
why does that seem to be like a good response waiting I mean, God seems to be pretty consistent in driving forward his good plans. And when things go haywire, it's usually like in the story so far when man gets involved and tries to do something that they think is a good idea. Um, yeah. Yeah, it feels like... Especially when the situation seems complex and hopeless. It's like, you know... Is the way out of it going to be more good ideas or like God showing up and doing something? And that's, uh, that's the, I feel that attention as well, even now. Yeah. I was trying to, I think just as you were saying, like, is there any story in the old Testament where it was God's idea? I mean, sorry, it was, it was man's idea that led to redemption or is redemption always sort of this like surprising intervention of God? Um, where it's his idea that achieves it. And I, I actually, I don't really know. Like, I can't think of a time where like a few good men, like, or women like got together and said, Hey, this is what we should do. Um, and it, and it worked out well. One thing that's true about these waiting folk is they tended to be poor and marginalized. Um, so they're people who are far, that's part of it. It's like, they don't have the clout of the Pharisees, uh, or the compromise, the Sadducees. Um, now I guess they could have been revolutionaries or, or, um, separatists, but yeah. How does waiting make sense given your story? How do you feel about waiting given your story? Sometimes I think about that first in, I think it's in Proverbs that says like a hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hmm. Like sometimes it's really difficult. Yeah. Like just because waiting is the right thing doesn't make it like the virtue in it is not <laughs> its own reward often. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. sometimes it still feels really terrible and and like it's hard to recognize reconcile it with like when he says in i think his first peter when he's like like the lord is not slow as some count slowness like that means he knows what he's doing and that he's gonna like come through at the proper time but like i still feel sick my heart feels sick because i've been waiting for whatever it is for yeah a long time Yeah, I've always been confused personally when the verse in Isaiah that talks about waiting on the Lord leads to more strength. And I just think like, I, I feel weaker, like the longer that I wait, you know, like, um, like how, so you, so you're just wondering like, man, how does waiting on the Lord result in more strength? I don't know. There's a verse about his power and was made perfect in weakness, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think it's hard to be inactive um, mm-hmm. where there is a certain level of being active and wait, like active waiting where you're just mm-hmm. being faithful 
Um, but I think, you know, we're so driven, especially in this world where we know how long it's going to take to get a delivery or, you know, we know what our calendar looks like next week. We know we're able to make order of things. And I think the, when that is removed from us, um, it forces us to be active in our faith and strengthen our faith, but it doesn't feel like that. It just feels frustrating. Um, and, uh, I feel like in the times of my life, when I look back at when God did reveal himself during times of ambiguity, where I couldn't actually put my, put my perfect box in or my create order out of nothingness, um, were the times that I was able to grow the most, but at the time it was just like not pleasant and didn't feel like a growing experience at all. Yeah. 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 I think that has been waiting is so hard, but then when you just like swing and a miss, like so many times, you know, like you're just like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do the day to day, like regular things of faithfulness, you know, that do feel more within my, within my ability to choose and then just let God do the big stuff. Um, I really, I recommended this book a bunch of times, but, um, Anne Rice's Christ the Lord, it's a novel that she wrote, um, based on Christ's upbringing. It starts when like Jesus was maybe like eight or nine. Um, and he's sort of learning who he is. Um, but then one of my favorite things is it's like a, a portrayal of a very faithful Jewish family. Like what is, what was Jesus's upbringing like? Um, in this like faithful remnant Jewish family. And it's just really beautiful and really simple. And like, no, obviously Jesus came out of nowhere. Like no one knew or expected him to be great. He didn't have this like fantastic education. Um, and his parents weren't like important people, but it's just really beautiful. Like that's what waiting is. It's just like this, this like faithful, diligent, they like kept, um, the rhythms of faith, um, yeah, so I highly recommend it. It's a really great book and really well-researched too. So it's like accurate. It's not like entirely fantastical. So Anne Rice, Christ, Christ the Lord, an unlikely author for a fantastic book um, and what it means to be, to wait and to be faithful in that. All right, um, act three, scene two, Jesus's baptism. God sent a messenger named John to tell people to get ready because the Messiah was coming. John was a distant cousin of Jesus, born just six months before him. He was a rugged man who lived in the wilderness, ate locusts and wild honey, and wore clothes made out of camel hair. John boldly challenged the Jews, don't just say that you love God, prove it with your life. Turn away from your sins and turn to God. He became known as John the Baptist because he dunked people into the Jordan River, though all those who had confessed their sins. Baptism was a symbol that you were part of God's people and that you had been washed clean from your sins and were choosing a new way of life. When Jewish leaders asked John if he was the Messiah, he responded, no, but someone is coming soon who is far greater than me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals or even to be his slave. You see, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with God's spirit. 
Soon after that, Jesus came to be baptized. And when John saw him, he said, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. But Jesus insisted. So John baptized him in front of the crowds. And when Jesus came out of the water, God's spirit came down from the sky. It looked like a dove floating down and resting on him. And then a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love. You bring me great joy. Act three, scene three, Jesus's temptation. Immediately after being baptized, Jesus was led by God's spirit to go into the wilderness. There Satan tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. During that entire time, Jesus didn't eat anything and became very hungry. Satan tried to deceive Jesus, saying, If you're God's son, why don't you turn these rocks into loaves of bread to eat? And Jesus answered him, No. When God spoke to Moses, he said, People need more than bread to live. They must find their life in the words of God. Then Satan took Jesus to the top of the tallest building in Jerusalem and said, If you are God's son, jump off. Your sacred writings say, God will send his angels to catch you, and you won't even hit the ground. And Jesus replied, Moses also wrote, Do not test God. Next, Satan took Jesus to the peak of a huge mountain. He showed him all of the nations of the world in their brilliance. He said, I will give you all of this, anything you want, if you'll kneel down and worship me. And Jesus responded, get away from me, Satan. It's commanded, put God above everything else and only worship him. Then Satan went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. At this time, he was about 30 years old. Through Jesus's life, he never sinned or rebelled against God. He always chose to do what was good and right and perfect. Um, So John's ministry and message was similar to the separatists uh, it was in the wilderness and he like wore weird clothes and the legalists uh he called for repentance and uh faithful living how was it different from them though what was different about john's ministry than the separatists and the legalists well in part he was preaching that the messiah was actually there and had come mm-hmm yeah, they weren't having to like earn or persuade God or like earn God's Messiah. He was already here and they were just preparing for it. Yeah, that's a great point. And then similar to some of my favorite monastics through the church history, like even though they were living in a way, they were still really engaged in dialogue with the community and people. they were attracting people to come and seek wisdom and seek like this compelling alternative, which sparks kind of revival of sorts. Yeah, like he he wasn't asking people to um, to separate with him. Like it was like his call to be in the wilderness. Like that was like his burden as a prophet. But then he people come and to return among the people, which is a really big difference. Um, cause even you have in that one passage where the like soldiers ask him, farmers ask him, like, what do I do? And so like, keep doing, keep, keep doing what you're doing, but do it, uh, in a holy way following after God. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's such an important, such an important point where John 
he, like, unlike the legalists, like the focus was on God's action. Um, and I'm just preparing myself to receive God's action. And then unlike the separatists, I don't stay in the wilderness. I go back into Jerusalem, back among like a wicked town or whatever, and li- just live differently, live faithfully. Um, it surprised John that Jesus wanted to be baptized too. What does Jesus' baptize, baptism tell us about Jesus? And how does that like encourage or challenge you? I mean, it was interesting that John's message was about like, he's like repent. Um, and that's kind of like why he was baptizing people, you know, like repent yeah. and then like be baptized. So like Jesus didn't need to repent in the sense of like, he didn't sin, but I think yeah, maybe it's, like, a greater understanding of what repentance means and what, like, baptism means of just, yeah, like, I mean, maybe for Jesus it was it was less of a turning back to God after sinning and more of a just, like, recommitment or, like, affirmation um, of his commitment to God and God's commitment to him and his identity. Yeah. Yeah, he was not only committing to God and sort of like making a public statement of that, he was also like identifying himself with sinful people. Um, that he was among them, you know, that he was willing to like identify with them even in their sin and like take and take that on. Um, there's like such a humility there you know, that he wasn't telling other people to get baptized, you know. Um, He was just, uh, like, leading by um, example and uh, in humility. Anything else? Any other reflections on Jesus' baptism? It's, I mean, it's a story that's in three out of four Gospels. Um, It's in all the synoptics, both the baptism and the temptation. Um, oh, and actually the baptism is in John, just the temptation's not in John. But, um, yeah, so clearly, like, this is a really important statement about who Jesus is. Why did God's Spirit lead Jesus into temptation right after God said, this is my beloved son? Well, I think part of, not all of it, but part of it is that, um, think about what Jesus, uh, the temptations that Jesus um, experienced while in the wilderness, and then we hear, we read that Jesus was tempted. We hear that you know that he was tempted in every way that uh, that we were, that he can understand. He understands the temptations that we've been through, and some of those temptations are the very ones that um, he experienced in the wilderness. The for, uh, you know for power, for for getting our um, self worth or our whatever from anything outside of God, and yeah. Um, so he experienced it in the, in the extreme. So he really knows what we've been through and we experienced that. Yeah, after so much failure, <clears throat> like we've just like this history of like failed saviors, uh, essentially, um, here is like sort of a beginning proof like that Jesus is different. Here's what I found. <laughs> I didn't need Siri to do that, um, to find anything. But... Um, yeah, like what, like this proof that he can withstand and really like 
this is the first time we've seen Satan personally tempt anybody since the Garden of Eden. Like he's been in the background of all of the um, all of the Old Testament. Um, in Job, you see him talking to God, but you don't see him like actively talking with a human being. This is the first time that he comes back on back into play. Um, so that's one way that it's similar um, and different similar to Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve. Um, as Rob was saying, J Jesus was tempted in three ways by Satan. He appeals to his hunger, right? Suggesting he break his fast. Uh, he appeals to his doubt, suggesting he test God's love for him or test uh, or approve or glory in that. And he offered an easier way to glory. Like if you just bow down to me, like you'll get all these kingdoms that are, um, that will be yours after a long, hard truck, but you can get them now. Um, what are ways that this scene is like s same and different from Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve? What's different about the setting and why would that, what does that speak? Well, first off, you got wilderness versus garden of Eden. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't be too different. Such something where everything is, everything you need is right there for you and another place where there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how does that speak to Jesus's uh, uniqueness, his ability, his power, um, his purity, that he is able to obey even in the harshest circumstances, um, whereas Adam and Eve failed in the best, most like blissful circumstances? Um, Satan began the first and second temptations with if you are the son of God. Um, what is Satan's tactic here? What is he challenging? I think he's challenging God, really challenging whether, you know, if God really made you or like if you are the son of God, like if God exists and you are this person. Then... Yeah, it's like really challenging Jesus's identity. Uh, before we actually have heard like um, there's never there's not been in the story really like reference to Jesus as the son of God or certainly Jesus isn't saying it but Satan knows it you know and is coming and challenging Jesus's identity if you are the son of God um, why don't you do these things how does that relate to temptation of Eve and the temptations we face does Satan follow a similar tactic with us I feel like one of the basic, like foundational things is always to like question God's goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what Satan did with Eve. Where he said like, God knows you won't die, but he's actually withholding good from you. Um, and you kind of have that here too. Like if you're the son of God, like aren't you entitled to turn some rocks into bread because you're hungry? Like, isn't that... Aren't you allowed to do that? Why would you not do that? Um, and then the throwing yourself, like, oh, if you're the son of God, then do this thing and prove it. Um, and Jesus's response to that, I don't know if you remember, like quoting Deuteronomy, is like, do not test God. Um, that like to test God, who's been nothing but faithful to Jesus and nothing but faithful to his people, like is an offense. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship 
uh, where somebody's tested you, um, where they've just like done something to see what you would do. It's like the most upset. I mean, for me, it's like one of the most upsetting things, like, um, just as a signal to you. And like, it just like drives me crazy when somebody would do something just to like see my response, you know? Um, and that's what Satan's sort of asking, asking Jesus to do, um, to test God's love, to test his goodness, to sort of put a wedge between God, the Father, and God, the Son. Anything else strike you about temptation um, that you learn about temptation from this story? I think for me, uh, like what struck me was like Jesus' faith and uh, like and God's word and what he's uh, what he'd been taught and like what he maybe like what he can resort to in the times of temptation. Mm-hmm. Because every time like the, the Satan came in to try to tempt him, there was a word that he could refer to or a teaching or something that he could call to and kind of ground his his actions on and why he was maybe taking a leap of faith and trusting that. You know, there will be food that he didn't have to bring food to, to reality to like, ease his hunger. Um, so just, I think for me, is it the the faithfulness in like believing that, there, you know, that he is the son of God, that God exists and trusting in God's worth to like carry him through the hard times or through his situation. Yeah. Yeah, like, man, it's so instructive that Jesus, Jesus didn't use non-human means to withstand Satan. So, like, the reason Jesus withstood Satan, I mean, part of it is, like, he was the eternal son of God, and so it's impossible for God to sin. But then he, as a human, like, he quoted scripture. Like, he pointed back to the promises of God. Um, He rebuked Satan, you know, said to to get away from me. Uh, And so, like, there, he didn't do anything that that we can't do you know we can still learn from jesus and not just say oh that's jesus he does he always of course he's gonna succeed um you know my kids always like are like if they see you see like a professional you're like oh they're so good you know at what they do but it was like hours of practice um you know like to achieve their like basketball skill or uh we were watching ice skating earlier and sort of just like imagining ourselves in our ice skating like doing the things and there's like so much practice and that was even true of jesus where he like grew in wisdom and stature um uh, 30 years of faithful living um readied him to to face satan and then and then with that the anointing of the spirit at baptism our last scene and then we'll close act three scene four jesus's disciples not long after Jesus is, t- uh, I'm not me. I'm unmuted now. Okay. Um, our final scene, Act Three, Scene Four. Jesus' disciples. Not long after Jesus' temptation in the desert, John saw Jesus coming toward him and yelled out, "Look, there is God's Passover Lamb. He will take away the sins of the world." God showed me He's the Messiah we've been waiting for. God's own Son. As Jesus walked along the sea, he told some of John's followers, come and follow me. From then on, Jesus surrounded himself with a few close followers called disciples, showing them how to live in the ways of God. Some of his disciples were like these former disciples of John the Baptist from the wilderness. Others were from a working class fishing family. One was a tax collector employed by the Romans from the accommodationist or compromise uh, group. Another was a zealot from the revolutionary group. 
None of his early followers were from the rule keepers group. From then on, Jesus traveled through the area, meeting in marketplaces, homes, and Jewish synagogues, teaching people God's ways. He brought a new message to them, saying, The kingdom of God has come. Now turn from your sins and turn to God. Full of the Spirit's power, Jesus healed people with every kind of sickness and disease. News spread quickly about him, and huge crowds began following him wherever he went. People traveled from miles away to be near him and see the amazing miracles he performed. But only a few became disciples. Next week, we'll continue the ministry of Jesus and life. Um, onto his death and resurrection. Uh, for the sake of time, we're going to forego a final discussion on this, but I still want to offer a final word as we close uh, with this story introducing Jesus's disciples. Um, up to this point in the story, we talked about it in our breakout room. We are now well acquainted with three established patterns. Uh, first, the human race is unable to save itself, to meet the requirements for faithfulness and flourishing. And second, we've seen God's persistence in saving humanity. He won't let it go. He won't let them go. Um, He continues to come after them. Um, This is beautifully captured in Hosea 11. It says, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is amazing. And unlike what we, unlike how we describe holiness so often, in Hosea 11, when God's holiness is confronted with our sin, our continued sin, how we are bent toward unfaithfulness, on turning away. It actually increases God's love. His compassion grows grows warm and tender in the face of his people's sin. He says, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Man, how many of us would have written that verse differently or would expect it to be differently, that I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will come in wrath. But that's not what Hosea 11 says. It says, I will not come in wrath. Um, His holiness uh, actually recoils from continued anger. And how challenging is that to us? As a father, I get angry when my kids disobey. I don't find uh, compassion and tenderness growing in the face of disobedience. But that's how God is. His compassion and tenderness grows. 
And so first we see the human race's inability to save itself. Second, we see God's persistence in wanting to save humanity. And yet last, we also see that God is unwilling to shrink his expectation that his people be holy. He still holds that standard. There are still consequences for their action. These are three consistent patterns across the Old Testament, even as they seem irreconcilable, that humans fail consistently, that God wants to save them, but he's unwilling and even unable to compromise his holiness in doing so. And so what are we to do? Uh, One of the most meaningful questions for me every year during the story of God is connected to those four strategies um, on offer before Jesus arrived. Like that's the question that sticks with me across the year. Um, These were strategies people were trying to make up to reconcile these truths. And so which one would I follow? Would I be a legalist? Would I be a compromiser, a separatist, a revolutionary? Uh, Which one would I be? Um, And what does that say about me? Which one would I not be? And what does that say about me? Which one would I avoid? Um, This was the first year, though, that I glimpsed or, or considered the fifth strategy, that strategy of the remnant, which is to wait, um, to wait on God, to live faithfully, be righteous and devout, waiting for God to fulfill his promises full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that was how Simeon uh, was described at Jesus's birth, the man who worked at the temple. Um, he says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Righteous and devout, full of the Spirit, waiting. Uh, this could describe Anna the prophetess. It could describe Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were waiting, righteous and devout. Um, this was the strategy advocated for by John the Baptist. And here we see the active part of waiting. And so a member of our breakout talked about what what is the waiting doesn't have to be passive. It can be active. And John the Baptist called people to wait. The kingdom of God was very, very near, but he called them to prepare themselves for God's coming. Uh, Prepare themselves while they wait. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sins, change your lives, get ready because Jesus is coming. Uh, Like Simeon, be righteous and devout. And that word just struck out, stuck out to me. Um, Devout. Are you devout, not in a way that imagines you can earn your salvation, but in a way that is preparing your soul for God's salvation in Christ. Um, How do we hold these three truths together that we are incapable of saving ourselves, that God earnestly desires to save us, but that he cannot compromise his holiness in doing so? Uh, What we will see over the next two weeks is how the gospel brings these three threads together in the work of Jesus. Uh, The gospel of Christ, uh, the gospel of the cross acknowledges humanity's inability to save itself. Uh, That's why Jesus came to be faithful where we have failed to be obedient in our place and to die in our place. The gospel also expresses God's desire uh, that people would be saved. Man, he wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And because he wants all people to be saved, he's holding back Jesus's second coming. He is giving people a chance to turn from their sins. Uh, He's not being slow, but is patient toward us. Um, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I feel like here again, like Hosea 11, we see like the uh, verse that doesn't end in the way we might expect. Um, He is not, uh, he's unwilling um, 
This is where we see how God is unwilling and unable to compromise his expectation, right? He wishes that no one should perish, but he doesn't say the opposite that we would say, but everyone should live. He wishes that no one would perish, but everyone should live, although that is true. But what does he say? It says he wishes that no one should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the answer to our need is not for God to ignore sin, to make it no big deal. That won't save us. Um, Instead, the opposite of perishing is repentance. The opposite of perishing is faith and obedience, devout waiting on God. Would you call yourself devout? Why or why not? Uh, Would others call you devout? Would they look at your life and say in some way, this is a devout Christian, Um, a person who is gripped by their religious beliefs, who, like Abraham, is righteous by faith, Uh, someone who recognizes that she cannot save herself. Uh, It doesn't matter if she keeps all the rules, like the legalists. It doesn't matter if we separate ourselves from society. It doesn't matter if we fight for cultural or political change. We cannot save ourselves. But neither is salvation unimportant. It is dangerous to be like the compromisers who just live and let live. God cares about holiness. He frowns upon people who cavort with the world. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so we have to be careful. We don't want to fall into that either. He cares about holiness. Our only hope is God's salvation, that God would make us ready for Christ's return. The Lord is salvation. That is what Jesus means. He is our hope. And so in faith, we ready ourselves. We get as close to him as we can. We are inside him and he in us. Um, Are we devout? Uh, I'm taking a class currently and I've been reading a lot uh, for a project on heaven and hell lately and their various views and, and would happy to discuss any of them with you if, if you're curious about what I'm reading. Um, but as I've read, no matter what view is true, uh, no matter what you hold to be true, I know this, I want to be ready for Christ's return. Like I want to be prepared for heaven, like Simeon. I want to be ready for whatever is on the other side of death. I want my family to be ready. I want my neighbors, my friends, my co-workers, and I can't be ready and they can't be ready on the basis of merit. Like I can't earn my way there. I need Jesus. I need grace. I need the spirit. I need God's word, God's people. I need repentance. I need faith. I need holiness without which no one can see God. How terrible it would be to not be ready. How terrible it would be to be a zealot and to give so much of yourself and miss Jesus. How terrible would it be to be a separatist and be away and miss Jesus, to be a legalist and refuse the way of Christ, to be a compromiser and settle for time in this world and miss Jesus, the savior of the world. So I want to be ready Um I want us to be ready. Are we pursuing a life that is righteous and devout? Um, Every week we ready ourselves for Christ's coming through communion. It's a time where we confess these three truths, that we are sinful, that God offers salvation in Jesus in his death and resurrection, and that God offers that salvation by grace through faith to those who turn from sin and embrace Jesus as Lord. And so we get a fresh chance to do that right now. And so let's pray and then someone will lead us in communion. Dear Father, we are thankful for 
your story um, and for writing it down, inspiring uh, people to write down the scriptures in all its complexity and all its uh, ugliness too. Man, we were talking in our group on how discouraging the Old Testament can be that people just mess up over and over and over again in all kinds of different circumstances. They can't bring themselves to remain faithful to you. Uh, but you are faithful. When you see your people sin, it causes compassion to grow in your heart. We're so grateful for that because we all come as sinners and to remember that in our sin, when you see it, compassion grows. Um, but with that, you also want us to repent. You don't want us to perish. Uh, you don't want us to continue in sin, but you want us to reach repentance. And so I pray that for all of us as we think over our lives, as we think over this week and over today, uh, would we be moved to repentance? Um, be, would we be removed to devout faith um, as we take communion? I pray for this time. I pray that you would speak uniquely to each of the people here and that we would carry this story through us um, uh, into our neighborhoods and our families and our jobs. Uh, Father, help us to be devout followers of Christ and to call other people uh, to follow him too. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.